Well, the 19th of April uh, 2008 is a significant date in my life. Uh, on that day, uh, something happened that changed my life forever. The person that you see before you here today is a different man. Let me give you a, an example of some of the ways that my life has changed since the 19th of April 2008. Well, prior to that date, I reckon I was doing pretty good if I had a shave once a week. Ever since that date, I've shaved, well, at least twice a week. Before that date, most of the movies that I watched, they tended to have one, two, a hundred zombies in them. Uh, ever since that date, I've watched far fewer zombie movies. Before that date, my bedroom floor, well, it doubled as my wardrobe. But not since that particular date. So what happened on the 19th of April 2008? Well, I got married. I married, I married Beth, and as a result, I am a different person. Not in every way, but in many ways. It seems that Beth has had this particular influence over me and who I am, and as a result, I've changed. Some might say mostly for the better. <laughs> but it's the same for Beth. <laughs> Marriage has changed her too. It's a very scary thought, I know, but I have had a certain influence on her and who she is today. She's changed. No longer will you hear Beth say, tomato. No, you'll hear her say, tomato. It's part of the refining influence that I've had on her life. If I watch less zombie movies today than I ever did, well, the fact is Beth watches more zombie movies today than she ever did. For better or worse, we've both changed. We've had this influence on one another, an influence that you would expect when you, you unite yourself to someone, as in marriage. Well, tonight we're going to hear about a particular Christian church. And what they have done is they have united themselves to a certain group of people. But the problem is this group that they have united themselves with is not a good one at all. Now, it seems that this particular group that they have uh, united themselves with is not only having a, a bad influence on them, but there's the very real potential that they would have a destructive influence on them. And so it's my hope this evening that as we learn about this church, we will learn, we will learn from their mistake and we won't make the same mistake that they did. Now let's just pause for a moment and remember where we're up to. You might remember last week where we began a sermon series looking at seven letters. Uh, seven letters in the Bible written by Jesus written to seven first century churches. Now you might also remember that last week I had a plan. I had a plan to look at all seven of these letters in just these first three weeks of January. I've come to realise this past week that was a silly plan. A silly plan. You can't do them justice going over them that quickly. So I've come up with a new plan. What we're going to do is we're going to look, look at just one letter per week for the, tonight and then next week. And then we'll take a break and we'll look at the final three letters sometime in the future, pro probably next January. But tonight we're going to look at the third of these th uh, seven letters, which you can find in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you don't already have that open in front of you, can I encourage you, pick up a Bible, turn to, it's very easy to find, very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. Now last week I also showed you that all seven of these letters have pretty much the same structure. 
And like last week, I've printed it up on your uh, order of service here, and you'll be able to follow along if you want to, and you'll be able to fill in the blanks as we go along if you want to. So let's begin by looking at who this third letter is written to. Read with me, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. So, okay then, this letter, we see it's written to the church that's in the city of Pergamum. And who is it from? Well, let's read on, second part of verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So again, this is a letter written by Jesus. But here you'll notice that Jesus, he's described in really quite a menacing way. He's holding a, a double-edged sword, wielding a sword. You see, these are the words of a man holding a lethal weapon. What's the point? Well, the point is you better listen up. You better listen to what Jesus has to say. Like, you know, if somebody's got a shotgun pointed at your head, well, you listen to the instructions that they give you. If you value your life, you do what they say. It's the same here. And then Jesus goes on to write what it is that he knows about this church in Pergamum. He writes all about their good points, first of all. He writes that he knows where these people live. Not that he just simply knows that they live in a city called Pergamum, no. He knows the context in which they live. He knows that this church exists in a city which is so totally opposed to the gospel, uh, so depraved, so ungodly, that Jesus can call it Satan's throne. In fact, we know that at this time, uh, the city of Pergamum was full of pagan worship. Uh, there were idols to this God and that God here, there and everywhere. Uh, we also know that at this time, Pergamum was uh, the centre of emperor worship for the entire province. At the same time, Christianity, well, it was an illegal religion. And so Christians at this time, they faced a hard time. They, 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 were, they faced demands to renounce Jesus and to call upon uh, Caesar as their Lord, to worship him instead of Jesus. And if they didn't, well, they faced terrible persecution. See, this was a real test to the faith of these Christians. But Jesus praises the Christians in Pergamum, praises them for staying true to his name, for not giving in. Some of them have even lost their lives for, for their faith. Some of them have, have lost their lives on account of standing firm for Jesus, like a man named Antipas, who Jesus calls his faithful witness. Read with me verse 13. Verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. See, they've stood firm, they've stayed faithful, they've not allowed this onslaught from outside to, to cause them to chuck in their faith. No, not at all. It's all very good, isn't it? But then Jesus goes on and he lists this church's bad points. He criticises them for the fact that they have allowed a certain group of people to come into their church and to join in their fellowship. Now, the problem with this, with this particular group is that they are false teachers. False teachers peddling false ideas about the gospel of Jesus. 
Now, for some reason, the church in Pergamum, they've turned a blind eye to these false teachers. Maybe it's just because they were really nice people. Uh, Maybe there were some family connections happening or something like that. We don't really know. But for whatever reason, the church in Pergamum have turned a blind eye to these false teachers. Jesus, he refers to these false teachers as those who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, to understand what he means by that, we have to remember that story about Balaam back in the Old Testament. You remember from our first set of Bible readings tonight. You remember that Balaam, he he was a prophet, but he was a bit of a dodgy character. Do you remember what he did? Let me remind you. Let's go back in history. God had just brought the Israelites out of Egypt. They had just wandered through the desert for 40 years. And there they were at the edge of the Jordan River, about to cross over and enter into the promised land, about to take possession of it. But then some of the people living in the area, a people called the the Midianites and the Moabites, well, they became quite concerned when they saw these Israelites coming, they're moving in on their territory. They, They became quite concerned. And so the king of Moab, King Balak, he decided to do something about it. And he went and he called upon this dodgy prophet, Balaam, to, to come and to call down curses upon the Israelites. But because God was on the side of the Israelites, well, he wouldn't let Balaam do anything other than bless the Israelites. Of course, this really frustrated King Balak and it frustrated Balaam too because, you see, he wasn't going to get paid while ever he was there blessing the Israelites. And so wicked man that he was, Balaam, he determined another way to set out to destroy these Israelites. He realised that while ever the Israelites were faithful to God, that no attack from the outside would ever be successful. But he realised that if somehow he could get some of his own people in and among the Israelites, if they could work their way in among them, then they would be able to entice these Israelites to be unfaithful to God. Then God would do the rest. God God himself would destroy the Israelites. And so it seems what Balaam did is he encouraged some of these uh, uh, Moabites and Midianite people to, to send into this Israelite camp a few of their prettiest girls to go in and seduce the Israelite men. Sure enough, the plan worked. And before they knew it, many of the Israelites, they were involved in sexual immorality with these women And they were joining with them in their pagan worship and practicing food, uh, eating food sacrificed to idols and all this sort of stuff. It was awful. Well, in the end, God became so angry at the unfaithfulness of the Israelites that he sent a plague upon them. And we're told that 24,000 Israelites dropped dead before the Israelite people repented. So you see, when Jesus now says that this church here in Pergamum has among them people that hold to the teaching of Balaam. What he's saying is that they are now in and among these people and they're teaching a false religion and that given time they too will entice these Christians into some false religion that will then make God very angry with them. But on top of this Balaam group, There was also another group of false teachers in Pergamum. They were called the Nicolaitans. We don't know a lot about them, although the uh, commentators 
the commentaries, they, they pretty much say that the Nicolaitans and the Balaam group were, seem to be pretty much the same thing. Read with me from verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, next, Jesus tells the church the steps that they must now take. He tells them to repent. They have to repent. They have to stop with this complacency. And they have to deal with these false teachers once and for all. Removing them from their fellowship. Why? Well, because Jesus says if they don't, then there's going to be serious trouble. He says that he himself will come and fight against these false teachers with the sword of his mouth. So it's another picture of Jesus with his sword again. This picture's a bit different though, isn't it? Here he is. It's the sword of his mouth. In other words, a time is coming when Jesus will come and he will speak judgment upon these false teachers and when he does, they are going to get slaughtered, as will anybody who has been led astray by them. Read with me from verse 16. Verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Then Jesus gives his customary CC, like in all of his letters, showing us that these letters are just as relevant to us here today as, as they ever were, you know, if we have ears to hear. And then to finish the letter, Jesus gives the Christians in Pergamum a final motivation, a final motivation to, to act on the commands of this letter. He says that if they do stop with their complacency, if they do remove these false teachers, if they do overcome in this way, then they will be given some of the hidden manna and they will be given a white stone with a new name on it. Read with me the last verse, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of their hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Yeah, if they overcome, they will be given the hidden manna and they will be given a white stone with a new name on it. And I'm sure that would have been a great motivation for them if they had any idea what the hidden manna and the white stone actually were. I've been racking my brains all week trying to work out what they might be. I think I might understand the hidden manna. Remember how God fed the Israelites manna out in the desert and at that time he told them to uh, take some of the manna and put it inside a jar and then put it inside the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. Can you remember that? And Do you remember how the Holy of Holies, actually it was that place that represented where, where God lives, it, it represented heaven essentially. Well I reckon that just maybe the hidden manna that we see here in Revelation it's sort of a, a reflection of that particular manner there in the Holy of Holies. 
And so the motivation here is that if these Christians remove these false teachers, if they don't get led astray by them, then they'll be given the right to eat this manna right there in the presence of the whole of the presence of God, right, right there in heaven. See, I think this is a picture of that great banquet that awaits all of us Christians in heaven. And yes, it is a great motivation. In terms of the white stone with a new name on it, I've got nothing. And uh, the commentaries really don't have anything either. They are pretty useless at this point. But whatever that white stone is, it is a really good white stone. Okay. And you really want that white stone. And it is a great motivation, that white stone, to get rid of false teachers from your church. All right then. So that's the third of these seven letters written by Jesus. Now what I want to do is spend a little bit of time thinking about what it is that we learn from this letter to the church in Pergamon and how it is that we could apply it to us here today at Chatswood Presbyterian Church. Well, the first thing that I reckon we need to realise is that, that our church here, that the biggest threat that our church faces here today is not some threat that comes from outside. Its biggest threat is actually something that would come from within. Because, you see, we might face all sorts of persecution from the world around us. But you know what? At the end of the day, if we remain true to Jesus, then we're perfectly safe. You know what, we, we could even live in a city that is totally opposed, totally opposed to the gospel, so ungodly. You know what, we could even live in the very throne room of Satan himself. And you know what, we would be perfectly safe. Oh yeah, we, we, we might lose our lives, like Antipas did. But you know that the worst that could ever happen to us as Christians? Heaven. Heaven. See, the worst thing that can happen to us, it, it, it doesn't come from outside. Now, the worst thing that can, that can happen to us, or the biggest threat that we face, comes from within. It comes in the form of false teachers who seek to lead us into some kind of false worship. Some false worship that then causes God's wrath to come upon us. And so what we need to do now is to remain vigilant, vigilant against the presence of false teachers in our church. And when they come among us, well, we can't just turn a blind eye to them. Now, we've got to remove them. But, of course, that raises the question of, well, how do you recognise a false teacher in the first place? Because the chances are that when they walk into your church, they're not wearing a black cape and dark sunglasses. Chances are they don't have a, an, an evil laugh that gives them away. Now, false teachers, they're probably a lot like you and me. They're probably very friendly people, probably very likeable people. They're probably very sincere in what they believe. So then, how, how do you recognise a false teacher? How do you do it? Well, one of the key ways is from what they teach. Because you see, as Christians, we believe that the Bible is the supreme authority. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is, is the word of God, that it is God-breathed, all of it. And as Christians, we believe that all of it can be trusted. 
We believe that the Bible tells us everything we need to know in order to be saved and everything that we need to know in order to live a godly life. A false teacher is anyone who teaches something that's contrary to what God has said to us in the Bible. Anyone who who adds to it, anyone who takes away from it, anyone who distorts it and then tries to promote those ideas. That's what a false teacher is. And that's the sort of person we need to keep out of our church. But as we seek to deal with false teachers, I reckon we need to be careful. Because I reckon there's at least two potential mistakes that we can make. Two mistakes that we really do need to avoid. Firstly, I reckon that it's possible for us to go too far. You know how we can go too far? We go too far when our false teacher detectors are so sensitive that they're going off every 30 seconds. You know, you're in Bible study and somebody asks the, you know, asks the question, reads the question, and then somebody else in the group answers and they give the wrong answer and before you know it, you're on your feet pointing, yelling, false teacher! <laughs> you know, I don't think we need to be like that. The fact is, I don't think we need to be frightened when people get things wrong. I don't think we need to be frightened when people explore issues. In fact, I think we ought to be encouraging healthy discussion and debate, but always with the goal of trying hard to understand what it is that God is saying to us in the Bible. I also believe that we go too far when we consider someone to be a false teacher simply because they've got a different understanding to us on a particular part of the Bible. You take um, infant baptism, for example. The fact is, I I have my own views on whether or not you can baptise a child. I've come to that particular conclusion because I I believe that I'm I'm trying to be as true as I possibly can to Scripture. But then there's other people, other Christians, who hold actually the opposite, a completely different understanding when it comes to infant baptism. And the fact is, they're trying to be as true to Scripture as they can possibly be. The fact is, I don't, I don't think that we need to remove every person from our church who happens to have a different opinion to us on everything that the Bible says, on something that the Bible says. The fact is, I reckon the chances of any two Christians in the entire world having absolutely 100% the exact same understanding of every minute detail of Scripture is actually pretty slim. And at the end of the day, we all know that, well, that I would be the only person in the whole world that would be right on all of those matters. I'd have to chuck you all out of the church. But then I think that would be going too far. Now, I I think we need to ask ourselves the question, what are the essentials of the Christian faith and what are the non-essentials? And we need to insist on those essentials and we need to allow a little bit of freedom when it comes to the non-essentials. It was the 17th century reformer, Rupert Medinius, who said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, Charity or or love. And I reckon he's right. Of course, that raises the question, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? Well, I, I think 
The answer to that question can actually be seen in part from the very letter that we're looking at tonight, this letter to, to the church in Pergamum, right there in the middle of verse 13. Have a look with me, middle of verse 13, where Jesus commends these Christians, saying, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. See, it's being true to the name of Jesus and holding on to faith in him that, that forms the essentials of the Christian faith. In other words, it's Jesus Christ himself who forms the essential core of Christianity. Who he is and what he has done. His God-man nature. His virgin birth. His sinless life. His atoning sacrifice at the cross. His bodily resurrection. His, his ascension. The pouring out of, the, of his Holy Spirit. See, these are the essentials of the Christian faith. I reckon it's pretty sad to look back through the pages of church history and see there some of the atrocities that Christians have carried out on one another simply because they couldn't agree on what are really non-essential matters. You know that there was a time when Christians who believed in infant baptism, like I do, used to drown those people who didn't? Some terrible things that Christians have done to one another. Friends, we need to distinguish between the essentials and the non-essentials. And you know what? Even then, it's not like we need to remove from our church every person who doesn't hold to those essentials either. Because you see, if a non-Christian comes to our church... If people from other religions come to our church, even if people who claim to be Christians but have some, well, less than orthodox, wacky beliefs, if they come to our church, then I reckon we ought to be welcoming them with open arms because, you see, this is where they will hear the word of God taught. We just open up the Bible and we work our way through See, this is the last place that I think we should be sending them away from. Now, I think the problem comes when such people are here in our midst and they are actively promoting ideas, false ideas, about those essential Christian beliefs. When they're actively seeking to influence people with their wrong ideas. When they're refusing all warnings to stop. I think that they are the true false teachers and they're the people that we have to ask to leave. Which brings us to the second mistake that we can make and that's when we don't go far enough. The fact is nobody likes asking a person to leave a church. It's, it's awkward, it's horrible. Especially when we as Christians are on about drawing people into our fellowship and loving them. Especially when we're talking about really nice people, respectable people. But friends, we need to heed Jesus' warning here. That a time may come when we have to ask someone to leave our church. Now the fact is, I'm not aware of any false teachers in our church. And I reckon we can praise God for that. But that fact, well, it should never lead us to complacency. Friend, you've only got to go back a generation or two into the history of this, our own church, to see that false teachers have been here before. 
I remember not long after I started at the church, I met a woman who had left the church quite a time earlier. Our conversation is etched in my memory and it went a little bit like this. I said to her, you don't go to our church anymore, do you? She said, no, I do not. I asked, why is that? And she replied with these words, these words that I will never forget. She replied, because you worship Jesus. I said, so you don't worship Jesus then? She said, no, I do not. I worship God. So you don't believe that Jesus is God then? No, I do not. He is not God. He is God's son. Only that silly apostle Paul taught that Jesus was God. You can't believe anything that that man said. Oh. So you don't believe any part of the Bible that was written by Paul? No, I do not. The only part of the Bible, parts of the Bible that you can believe are the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Everything else is rubbish. Well, okay then, I said. What about that bit in in the Gospel of John where, where Thomas saw the risen Lord Jesus and he said to him, my Lord and my God. Doesn't that show that the Gospel of John shows that Jesus is actually God? She paused and then after a moment she replied, well, you can't trust the Gospels either. Friends, I feel so sorry for that woman. So sorry for her because you know what? Somebody in this church taught her that. And that means that at some stage false teachers slipped into this church and it means that at some stage we as a church turned a blind eye to them. They led this woman astray. Thankfully at that time not everyone in the church was led astray but many were. In God's grace, here we are, we still exist. And today, you know what, we can rejoice. We can rejoice that there is now this this strong commitment to the essentials of the Christian faith once again. We can rejoice that our denomination as a whole is, is a strong one. With a Bible college that turns out men and women who are committed to biblical truth. In our own church here, we can rejoice that we have got elders who love the truth, who love the truth, who hold on to the truth, who seek to guard the truth. Please pray for them, won't you? But friends, we must learn from the errors of the church in Pergamum. And yeah, we need to learn from our own mistakes too. And we must never become complacent again. Friend, have you ever become aware that false teachers have made their way into our church? Please don't sit back and do nothing, will you? Rather, I encourage you to to go and and speak to one of the elders of our church. Share your concerns with them. They'll know what to do. They'll know how to guide you. But let's not be complacent. No, let's heed the warning of Jesus here. Let's never be led astray. Let's get that hidden manna and that white stone. And let's keep false teachers at bay. Let's pray.
Our Father, we want to thank you now for this letter to the church in Pergamon. We do pray that we would learn from it. We do pray that you would help us to be vigilant when it comes to false teachers. And as we do, we pray that we would never go too far and we pray that you would help us to not fail in going far enough. Help us, Father, to have unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials and charity in all things. For we pray in Jesus' almighty name. Amen.